guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. You've been on this podcast, Scott. Well, actually one time, and then I was on your podcast. So I appreciate yep. you coming back on so quickly. But you always seem to be a very good voice of reason. And I always love your perspective. And so I uh, figured, Thanks for saying that. Well, you're welcome. It's the truth, right? I'm, obviously, I'm not the only one thinking that, right? So the reason why I really wanted to have you back on this podcast was really to discuss what's happening right now with the conflict in the Middle East, with Israel. I know you've been posting a little bit. I know you're Jewish, but I remember last time on my podcast, we actually, you kind of touched upon the fact that you're an atheist or you kind of see yourself as being an atheist. Yeah, I've never bought into any religion in terms of its lineage or I'm a rabid atheist. Uh, atheism has been played a huge role in my life. To be honest, I've never felt that much connection with Israel. I've only been there once. Uh, so I don't, you know, I, I would be best described. My mother's Jewish, my father's Presbyterian. So I wouldn't describe myself as someone who comes at this from a place of heritage or faith, just someone who I just see this as observations of a bystander. I have benefited a lot from Jewish culture. I grew up in West Los Angeles. I was always cognizant of the Holocaust, and it was always it was sort of kind of my first historical reference for the importance of institutions and and trying to do the right thing and recognizing that that societies can go you know come off the the tracks, if you will. And I was cognizant of anti-Semitism very early. But more than that, Jewish culture gave me a lot of very positive things, specifically, the Jews I hung out with in West LA, they were all going to college. And so this the net effect of me was I was going to go to college. And college sort of started an upward cycle for me. So I, you know, that kind of Jewish culture that I was a part of in Los Angeles, I think initially planted the seeds of appreciation for education and higher education, which was fundamental for my progress. So what is your perspective? Like how would you Given what you just said in your background, mm -hmm. what you've seen, what's been happening, can we first talk about what's happening on the college campuses? Because I know that you're part of the NYU faculty. Mm -hmm. Has this been surprising to you? Is it has it the anti-Semitism? What is your take on what's really going on on the campuses in the U.S., especially the Ivy Leagues? So I'm more in touch with it than most people because not that I'm on campus a lot. I'm not because I'm in I'm in London. I'm in the UK, but I have a lot of friends still on the faculty at NYU, and I'm still very involved in UCLA and Berkeley. Some of it is exaggerated and inflated. It's not like there are marches every day calling for the death of Jews on campuses. The fact that they even exist though is incredibly alarming. A friend sent me a video of people at UCLA saying, you know, basically saying. Uh, of a bunch of people in a, uh, you know, emotional moment or not saying gas the Jews and they filmed it. It goes viral. So all of these moments go viral. And I would argue that like everything in a TikTok age, it, the situation has probably been, I wouldn't say it's hyperbolic, but it's, it's been inflated somewhat to the actual reality. I, I still think the majority of Jews on the majority of campuses should, should feel safe. Or at least I'd like to think that the fact that it's even there is just sort of unthinkable though. It's just not. The hypocrisy or the the response that is solicited, and this goes to the testimony, it's not what the president said in their congressional testimony at the universities that was not defensible. What is saying that free speech is absolute is actually defensible if that's the position you put out. If that's your line, I think it's defensible. I think you could argue that when people on a march say from the river to the sea, that while many Jews might see that as a call for uh, genocide, that that is... For, 
protected under free speech. Now, whether or not private universities have any fidelity to the free speech, that's another conversation. But if they decide to model themselves after the First Amendment, I think that is a defensible position. What is not defensible is having a line that's more like plaid. And that is the line constantly shifts based on the special interest group or the vulnerable group we're talking about. Because I can tell you, and I can say this with certainty, Jennifer, is that if I were to go out in the middle of the quad at NYU and start with a sign that said, lynch the blacks, I wouldn't be allowed back in the building within an hour. I would be fired. I would be shamed. I would never work in academia again. If I were to say, burn the gays, the exact same thing would happen. But somehow, and I have, been, as a faculty member, I have received emails from my department head outlining all these different microaggressions of things, quite frankly, I never even considered that were now considered microaggressions and offenses that could ultimately lead to my dismissal. But when we start talking about speech calling for genocide of Jews, we start hearing words like contextualize and nuance. And so it's not that they said, it's not that their position was indefensible. It's not that the position was even wrong. It's the fact that they seem to have real fluidity around the position and erring on the side of First Amendment when it comes to speech affecting Jews. And, and more generally, this the broader observation, I think like a lot of people, I'm absolutely flummoxed, shocked, surprised at the, you know, that, 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 that notion that two-thirds of a iceberg's mass is underwater, you can't see it. I feel like 99.9% .9 of the anti-Semitism in the United States, and you know it's there, just as there's bias against any vulnerable group, you know it's there, but I underestimated it by like 100x. I had no idea it ran that deep. And not only that, it doesn't just infect, it's like stupid, hateful people are pretty easy to deal with because people recognize them for what they are. But when Western media immediately starts assuming that a hospital, you know, has been bombed by Israel rather than doing their investigation and finding out that, in fact, it was a rocket fired from Hamas, when the White House immediately goes to, we must protect the hospital, it strikes me that the very first call sign or demand from the White House should be, you have to release hostages. Isn't taking four-year-old girls hostage sort of like, you can't even have a conversation around what should happen until the other side fulfills that. It seems to me outrageous that people accuse Israel of war crimes, because to, to even acknowledge that Israel registers, the IDF does register war crimes. If I'm a member of the IDF and I find I capture a Hamas combatant and I slaughter him, and then I find his parents and I, or I, or I slaughter him in front of his parents, and then I film it and I send it to all the, the young man's contacts on his phone, that person in the IDF will go to jail. That is a war crime. We have war crimes in Israel. There's no such thing as a war crime, according to Hamas. So it just strikes me as outrageous that people seem outraged that the IDF is engaging in war crimes. Like when we fire missiles, it's a war crime. When they fire missiles, it's a war. Right. And I, I just, the, the whole thing is so kind of, I just never, you know, never knew it was there. And I think a lot of us just sit here and, are kind of overwhelmed with shock, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, listen, kind of similar to what you were, I mean, not to the same extent, but I grew up Jewish, obviously. I went to Jewish private school for a few years, many years of my life. But I was more culturally Jewish, not anything more. But I feel like this whole situation that's happened 
has awakened a tiger inside of me or like a bear inside of me because I never even thought for a second that we had this level of hate or anti-Semitism for us. So I feel like it's kind of aligned me or kind of brought me closer to my Jewish religion. Have you felt like that's happened to you just based on the zeitgeist of what's happening or you're just much more just just flummoxed, like you said, just kind of observing what's happening? It's been, has it brought you closer to Judaism or is it just kind of just more just the shock and awe of what's happening still? 100%. I don't practice Shabbat. I don't practice, I don't stay kosher. I don't pray. My kids will not be mar mitzvah, and I am Jewish. And I, you know, I haven't felt that way my whole life. And for the first time, you know, there are 200,000 Jews in London. There's, I think, 4 million Arabs, the majority of which go about their lives the same way I do, love their kids, want to work, want to be good people. And I remember when there was that pro the protest, the pro-Palestinian protest, and I saw just so many angry young people with Palestinian flags. I thought, Jesus Christ, there, there's like a, for the first time in my life, I thought, there's a non-zero probability that me and my family might have to move Tel Aviv to Tel Aviv one day, because that might be the only place we're safe. And I'd never in a million years thought that someone, an American citizen who lives in New York and is now living in London, that that's a possibility that I'm, I want is, <laughs> I have a vested interest in the survival of Israel, because I thought at some point, all of us might have to go to tell, I mean, all of us might have to retreat to Tel Aviv. Yeah, and it's, it's, I've laughing, never felt that. I'm not laughing, but. Uh, because we're outnumbered. We're 0.2% of the global population. There just aren't that many of us. And what you have here is this really, I'm just like, I'm trying to get to the underlying dynamics. I'm trying to understand it as someone who thinks of themselves as an analytical person. And I think there's a variety of things that are kind of the legs of the stool and the underpinnings of this. And I think that one, in the United States, we have had a very important conversation over the last 40 years around the wrongs and the injustices and the persecution of vulnerable groups, LGBTQ, non-whites, women. And I think young people are very angry about it. And because many of the laws or many of the norms have been outlawed, there are now anti-discrimination laws. There's anti Now many of the people, the real perpetrators, are dead. You know, they're they're gone. They're from an Aragon Buffett. These cultural norms have been washed off the planet, but there's still a lot of anger there. And so people go on what I would call the hunt for fake oppressors. I see it on campus. Mm -hmm. We're really angry and we're going to go on the hunt for fake racists because racism has been such a stain on our culture. We're so angry about it. We're learning about it in school. We're we're understandably outraged. So we're gonna we're gonna find racism in a ha the hapless comment of an English professor and we're gonna go after him. And what is should be the most communal, forgiving, thoughtful place, the most diverse, the most equitable, the most inclusive places in the world, we now have the need for DEI departments. And we fire people for small infringements or we shame the students, shame each other for these small infringements. Now, take that times a million. And that is young people think we need to go on the hunt for fake oppressors. And they've been taught that there are the oppressed and there are oppressors. And the shorthand for that is pretty simple. The wider you are, and the richer you are, the more likely you are to be an oppressor, right? That's just the easiest way to kind of do the shorthand. And to be blunt, there's no one whiter or richer than Israelis. And but what, Israelis what I Israelis aren't even white, by the way. Israelis I think they're, they're white. I think they're perceived as the whitest people on the planet. They are, but they're not white. That's what I, I'm not. I, I, I'm not talking about the reality. I'm talking about the perception that the, know, the Jews are considered the, the palest of the pale. And also, they're also considered very rich. There's a perception that they kind of control yeah. everything. They have been exceptionally successful. They have they have a disproportionate amount of influence. I see that as a 
a feature, not a bug. And what we have here is what I would call is the last really acceptable form of white hate. It's I, I see, maybe with the exception of ageism, that anti-Semitism is really the only protected bigotry in America right now. You couldn't say any of these things about another vulnerable group and not have swift repercussions and be hauled in front of a... I went to UCLA. I, got almost I, I, got, I was almost kicked out five times of UCLA, three times for academic reasons, one time because I got caught making out with my girlfriend in Powell Library and I got called in front of some student conduct committee. And then one time I took a $50 emergency student loan and I didn't pay it back within seven days and I got a notice saying we're kicking you out in 70 days. I was almost kicked out of UCLA five times. But these kids chanting, burn the Jews, don't even come in front of a student advisory board. It's like, we kick kids out for so much less than this. Half of students that start UCLA are 55% only graduate. Something like 40% of the kids who start UCLA don't get through. But we allow them to say this, these vile things. So I'm kind of, for the first time in my life, and my podcast co-host always reminds me of this. You know, some, she said something that really struck me. She said that, you know, Scott, you don't understand when I, you know, would, would kind of say you're being overly sensitive. She said, when you've never been a victim, you don't understand the fears of being a victim. And the analogy I use is I remember once walking around New York during COVID when it felt a little sketchier, a little bit more dangerous, a little emptier. And I was with my sister and this guy walked out of a door kind of quickly and she jumped out of her skin. And I said, Jesus, that was a bit of an overreaction. And she said, easy for you at 62190 to say, boss. She's like, easy for you to say. And it just struck me. It's like, I, I walk around Manhattan with my headphones in. I sleepwalk through life wherever I am. I can't think of the last time I felt physically threatened because the bottom line is I just got no one fucks with me. And yeah. if you're a 5'3 woman who's at a, you know, 100, 120 pounds, it's different. You can be physically threatened. And this is literally the first moment in my life after 59 years uh, you know, in America and the last year in the UK where I feel threatened. I've never, this is a totally alien emotion for me. And I think one of the positive things that will come out of this is one, I feel a much tighter bond with the community of Israel, but I also think I have more empathy for people who feel vulnerable. I've never had that, never had that sensation. But I find, circling back to the original question, the reservoir of anti-Semitism in the US is so deep. And the scariest thing about it, it's not just bigots. It's the New York Times. It's CNN. Right. It's it's the White House. They don't even realize when they're doing it. We must protect the hospital. You mean the hospital where surgeons are shuttling hostages between operating rooms? You mean the hospital where they know that command posts are underneath the hospital? It's just, it's like, well, okay, shouldn't the call sign that we're, with this all starts with free child hostages? So I, I'm just, I, I see this stuff as so apparent, and I don't think I bring a huge bias here as someone who doesn't feel what I call a real emotional connection to Israel. I just think of myself as someone who is a fairly thoughtful observer, but this level of bigotry, this level of hate, this level of double standard would not be tolerated for a moment across any other group. You'd have Revenant Sharpton marching on these campuses right now with tens of thousands of people if this shit was happening to Blacks. The LGBTQ community would not tolerate this, nor should they, because they had to put up with way too much shit. And I'll finish here, and I realize this is a diatribe. I got to be honest, I'm really disappointed. I'm not even sure I, I have the right to say we. When Jews walked hand in hand on the front lines with Martin Luther King, when they marched 
with the LGBT community because Jews in every one of these instances were out in front. They were out in front fighting for these communities. And you know what we found? It's a one-way fucking street. They're not there for us the way we were there for them. And let me go go full, you know, angry and offend everybody. I'm also really upset more Jews aren't speaking out. I see the same people in social, Jessica Seinfeld, Deborah Messing. There's like a handful of Jews with a platform saying anything. Because, And this is my fear that Jews in Hollywood, Jews in banking, Jews in finance that have big platforms and big voices are like, I don't know if you've heard, but young people feel very a lot of empathy for Palestine. They don't see Hamas as the enemy. So if you want your album to sell, or if you want to get that next IPO, just keep this shit to yourself. And here's the bottom line. Jews and leaders and civic leaders and political leaders, guess what? We were too fucking quiet 90 years ago. So I'm disappointed in other vulnerable groups where I feel like Jews were there for them and they're not there for us. And I'm also just quite frankly disappointed in Jews that have a big platform and aren't speaking out. By the way, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on, I wanted to have you on this podcast was to talk about, I mean, I love that diatribe, by the way, because you touched upon a lot of things that I had questions about. That was one, about the silence of Jewish people because of fear, fear of being canceled, fear of losing money, fear of all these other things. And that's kind of part of the problem. What I want to get back a little bit, though, because do you remember, I don't know, like over over time, I feel like we were like Jews were considered the good guys. And over time, we became the bad guys. What was that tipping point that then just turned it over? And, you know, democratically, the left, all of these where people were very pro-Israel, that shifted too. like it's become like you were saying, the social injustices is a hypocrisy where we are just not the Jewish people have been kind of eliminated from that piece of it. Where was the tipping point? How do we get Jews to speak up and not being, I call them like self-hating Jews? Is there a way to kind of change this, to get Jews to speak out, to not be fearful? And what was the tipping point? So if you don't mind answering those questions. So two questions. How do you get, how do you get people to speak out and what's happened that such that there's there's not as much empathy? Well, first off, so, and I'm not trying to position myself as the hero here. My, my down, our downloads of Pivot are up. My downloads of Prop G, where I'm kind of, it's, it's, I'm, I'm the only editor. I say whatever I want and I speak a lot about this. My downloads are substantially down. And because I have a very young following and young people, just quite frankly, are, are disappointed or disagree with my views on this. And I've turned a lot of them off. And also, I'm not known as a geopolitical person. I'm known as an economics person. And so it is costing me money. I believe in what Sam Harris said, and that is if you're blessed with two things, specifically people in your life that love you unconditionally and two economic security. And quite frankly, it's taken me a half a century to get both of those things, but I have them. You have a moral obligation to speak your mind. And this isn't fun. This isn't, I, I'm sure you're getting this too. The amount of pushback I am getting is pretty substantial. And so I think just if you're someone who's blessed with those two things and you do believe that this is a moment, I mean, I don't know about you. I have done so little for this country. When I remember when there was that big hurricane down in the South, I thought, you know what? I'm going to rent a Winnebago and stack it full of food and go down and just see if I can help. Didn't do a fucking thing. When 9-11 happened, I thought, I'm going to go down to the pile and help out. Didn't do anything. I have done so little. And I thought, finally, finally, it's time. You know, I'm going to be dead soon. I feel like I have a real sense of right and wrong here. Finally, I have the Kevlar. I don't need money any longer. 
I feel like finally I have an issue where I, I do think that I have something to say. Like, finally, this is your moment to actually goddamn do something, to have your intentions match your actions. And what I would ask of other people who have powerful platforms is, yeah, it might cost you, but this is real. If you think this can't happen again, the 1930s Germany had a thriving gay community. It was a liberal society. It was the epitome of a modern progressive society with deep culture, deep appreciation for academia and the arts. And five years later, they were putting people on trains. So to, to think to have some cold comfort that it couldn't happen here, well, actually it has happened here. It was 1930s Germany. And with respect to what has happened, I think Bibi Netanyahu and the far-right extremist policies of Israel have been a disaster for not only Israel, but Jews globally. And this is where I get you know some pushback from Jews and Israelis. And that is when people my age have a 70% favorable opinion of Israel. Because we grew up with the 67 war in Munich. Israel were the good guys. They were the good guys. And I think over the last 40 years, uh, especially the last 20, specifically Netanyahu striking deals with far-right extremist policies, including what I would describe as some raging bigots in the Knesset, young people see homes being bulldozed. They see policies that they would describe maybe justifiably as inhumane towards Palestinians. And now young people have a 20% approval. The generational divide on this issue is greater than it was on Vietnam. And I think the policies of Netanyahu and his cabinet have been an absolute unmitigated disaster for Israel and for Jews. Nobody is complicit or guilty of, of the actions of uh, other than Hamas of October the 7th, but they haven't helped. They've turned us from the good guys to the bad guys. And in terms of how we move forward, one, I just don't think you, how you have a stable peace with Hamas. Any group that says any ceasefire, as long as we take our last breath, we'll take every chance we get to fulfill our mission. We only have one amendment in our constitution, and that's the extermination and the elimination of the Jewish people. Can't have a peace in the region as long as that group has any power. I also don't think that we're ever going to have a sustainable peace as long as Netanyahu's in power. I think that him turning a blind eye to the funding of Hamas, thinking that that would stave off or delay a potential two-state solution has been a disaster for us. So, you know, this is a nuanced, complicated topic, but, you know, I hope that as we move forward, we recognize that I don't think either power structure can survive or can exist and have a sustainable peace moving forward. What about the fact that there's been like a lot of censorship? Like, you know, yesterday something happened where the son of Hamas, right? His podcast is going live tomorrow, right? With, mm -hmm. with me. And it was a promotion just of him saying, you got to listen to this podcast. Meta, Instagram, removed the, removed the post. That was taken down because of uh, content. But you, yet you have people like Sean King spreading a lot of hate, a lot mm -hmm. of vitriol, and you have TikTok videos. I mean, TikTok's a whole other, a whole other mm -hmm. animal. The, 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 there's obviously some type of campaign. There's a lot more Arabs, Palestinians, and there are Jews. There's obviously something in the zeitgeist where, where things that are being, there are Jewish focused, Israeli focused is being suppressed and free Palestine is being really kind of tracking well. I mean, the fact that that post got taken, and this is not just me. It's a lot of people who are like me, who are, who are speaking up who are getting shadow banned, we are getting restricted, when we're really not saying anything that is at all controversial. What is your take on that? That's social media, that's media. And isn't Mark Zuckerberg Jewish? I mean, obviously, like, again, these self-hating Jews. I mean, what is what is going on? 
Prof G, please explain and please help. Uh, the honest answer is I don't know. And I'll give you my conspiracy theory here. And that is, Good. first off, the majority of social media, they would rather just not have any of it. They just want out of this game. They realize it's a no-win situation. You know, social media, for the most part, is trying to exit the news business. They don't want to be in it. And they think of it as just fraught with all sorts of errors. It requires money to fact check. The reason why the New York Times, which is arguably the most dominant company in the world of news, still is not a great business is because to fact check and show nuance and do long form reporting is just a shitty business. It's it's a difficult, hard business fraught with all sorts of errors, fraught, fraught with all sorts of risk. Now, having said that, there, in my view, is something to the notion that, well, why can, how do you explain a 50-point swing in favorability around Israel based on the generational divide? Arguably one of the largest general, generational, it's hard to find any issue that has 20% support for young people and 70% support among your old people. Not even Social Security. The majority of young people support Social Security. There's not a 50% swing in that. Drugs, you can't, you can't find a 50% swing between boomers and you know Gen Zs or millennials, and I think some of it you have to say, well, you are where you where you spend attention. So this younger generation is, by virtue of that logic, they are TikTok. TikTok yeah. is the frame through which the lens, their view of the world is framed. Full stop. They spend more time on TikTok than on Netflix. If given a choice of TikTok or all other media combined, fifty-eight percent of Gen Z and millennials would choose TikTok. I just don't think people my age and people in Washington who aren't even allowed on TikTok have any idea the level of influence. You know, it's like my my frames are CNN, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you know, threads a little bit, but I have multiple frames. Uh, young people are dominated by TikTok. Now, if I were the CCP and the CCP controls TikTok, I, I don't care what any individual who's looking to get their Gulfstream on the IPO says about TikTok. If your company uh, headquartered in China, started by the Chinese, you are controlled slash influenced by the CCP. That You just sign up for it. You, if you want to incorporate, if you want to be in China, if you start talking about liberalization and you start talking about how you're, you know, you start making your own political views, you disappear for eight weeks and you show up in Japan saying you're just going to paint the rest of your life. Imagine if the US disappeared. Imagine if Jeff Bezos started shitposting the US government and disappeared for eight weeks and showed up in Toronto and decided, oh, I'm no longer going to talk about politics, I'm going to paint. That's what they did to Jack Ma from Alibaba. So to think that they don't have influence over TikTok is just naive. Now, if I were a member of the CCP, and if I'd grown up in Beijing, I think I'd be very patriotic. Your patriotism is a function of where you're born, full stop. Mm -hmm. So if I were them, they would be stupid not to be putting their thumb on content that divides America. And this is an easy one. Oh, the older people in power are pro-Israel, dial up pro Hamas content. Just and the thing about TikTok is the the ability to dial up and dial down certain content would just be so insidious, elegant, and easy, they'd be stupid not to be doing it. Right. We did it through Radio America and dropping leaflets and Good Morning Vietnam. We have we have a an entire division of the army that is there for PsyOps to use propaganda, to think that they know, they wouldn't do it and that they wouldn't leverage the most elegant propaganda tool in history, which, and I'm not even accusing the CCP of being pro-Hamas. What they are is they are anti-American, recognizing their competitor in the world is America. So if, for example, if all of America was rallying around, is was rallying around Hamas, I think they'd be running pro-Israel content. <laughs> but it, to think that, to think that the CCP likely isn't turning up a little bit, slowly but surely getting pro-Hamas content 
more sunlight in an effort to weaken us internally. Because here's the thing, Jennifer, <laughs> geopolitically, relatively speaking, we've never been stronger. Our GDP growth is strong, if not remarkable. Our inflation is the lowest of any G7 nation. No one is lining up for Chinese or Russian vaccines. We are, I mean, we literally are, our stock market has outperformed, for all this talk about the Hang Seng, we have outperformed every stock market. We, we are just, we are killing it. Oh, by the way, the biggest innovation in the last 20 years, AI, where is it? It's not only in America, it's not only in California, it's in a seven, it's all in a seven mile radius of SFO International. We're killing it, killing it. But here's the problem, we hate each other. And the way you defeat an enemy is you don't go in and you fight them directly. China can't, China and Russia can't beat us kinetically. They can't beat us economically. So what they do is they divide us. They atomize us internally. Yeah. They get us fighting and hating each other. So to believe or not believe that the CCP wouldn't be dialing up pro-Hamas content that creates a generational rift and gets us angry at each other such that we eat each other from the inside out is to be incredibly naive. So I believe I believe that CCP would be stupid not to be promoting and dialing up pro-Hamas content, which leads younger people to see th things through a frame. And this is what it leads special interest groups who are Harvard's freshman class is for the first time 51% non-white. That's a wonderful thing. I would argue they are the definition of stupid. And what's the definition of stupid? The definition of stupid, according to Carlo Cipolla, Professor Berkeley, is he has this wonderful access. Help yourself, help others. People who help themselves and help others, he calls intelligent. People who help themselves but hurt others are what he calls bandits. Mark Zuckerberg, he's a bandit, right? People who help others but hurt themselves, he calls them artists. I would call them martyrs, but he calls them artists. You know, the, we know those people that are so focused on others that they don't take care of themselves. They don't affix yeah. their own oxygen mask. And then people who hurt others and hurt themselves are stupid. And I would argue many of these special interest groups, many people on the far left are stupid because they are promoting and supporting and being apologists for an ideology that is incredibly hostile to everything they are. And the litmus test is the following. A decent litmus test for how to decide in a complicated situation who you back if you have to make a decision on who's right and who's wrong, especially when it involves war and you have to pick a side, is to say, well, what would happen if either side was in charge? So imagine Israel all of a sudden overnight is given control of Congress and the US military and our taxation. The next day you would know the difference. Jury trials, scientific research, academic institutions, civil rights, women's rights, no child labor. It would look, feel, and smell like America. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know that Israel had taken over America. Hamas gets control of Congress, our taxation system, and our military. Oh, let's start throwing gay people off of roofs. Let's start executing Christians unless they can convince us they have converted to Islam. I, I just think every, every campus should invite someone from Hamas onto campus and start with a conversation on preferred pronouns. They are supporting an ideology that believes these people are infidels and should be unceremoniously executed. And yet they have empathy for them. So it's the definition of stupid. I talk about this all the time. If the amount of uh, stupidity that, and I think it's ignorance and stupidity. And yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. I, I want to be respectful. I know you said you needed to leave it. You have a hard out, but I do I do have other questions. Do you want me to kind of wrap it up and we can do this yeah. and do part two some other time? I feel bad and I feel like I was shortchanging you. So I'm happy to come back on. <laughs> we got three minutes. Keep going. Well, I wanted to talk about I want one question I have because you talk so you talk a lot about men and the I guess the, the, the quality of men. 
and the lack of well, we talked, we, you and I have talked about this before about the lack of good men out there and how to build and become mm-hmm. a, a good man. Do you think there's a correlation actually between the weakness that we see kind of in the, in the, in the ignorance? Cause I, the, I'm going to say it, not you in information out there and maybe attaching to a cause where there's more people because of loneliness, because of depression of a lot of these men are looking for something or looking to seek community groups, all that stuff that they're kind of, do you think there is a correlation between the growing of protesting for free Palestine and the quality and loneliness and depression of men? Do you see anything or am I just like really reaching here? It might be there. I I haven't fe- I haven't made that correlation, and it's not because it doesn't exist. It's just because I haven't really thought it through enough. What I, where I do see a correlation is the following. I think the, the the we have real problems in this country. We still have systemic racism. You know, we have the the non-white community still faces real challenges. Women still face. I would argue that women under the age of thirty who don't have kids have largely closed the wage gap and are mostly protected. It's when women have kids that they become second-class citizens, 77 cents on the dollar, where a corporate the corporate world turns against them. There's, there's, there's injustice. There's still a lot of things we have to work on. But the biggest problem in America that pours gasoline on all these issues and turns them from issues where we can work together to try and solve them, whether it's climate change or, or systemic racism, I think all reverse engineers to the same place. And that is for the first time in our nation's history, a 30-year-old isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at 30. And the income inequality here, it's not only income inequality, it's generational inequality. And that is a 70-year-old today is on average 72% wealthier than they were 60 years ago, whereas a person under the age of 40 is 24% less wealthy. The amount of wealth controlled by people under the age of 40 has gone from 19% of GDP to 9%. So what do they see? People under the age of 40 see a couple things. One, they see unprecedented prosperity and it's thrown in their fucking faces every day. Everyone's on a jet and has ripped ads, but you. Everyone is partying at the Almond in Mykonos, listening to a DJ, going to Taylor Swift with $1,300 tickets, except for you. You are failing. You're failing and it's your fault and you feel rage and you feel shame and you're not even doing as well as your parents. And then they observe something else. An older generation is doing really well. And as you go older, it gets wider and more patriarchal. So we've created this very real correlation with economic injustice and whites and age. And so it's like, well, okay, anything they believe, I don't believe because it's not working for me. And I also really resent a patriarchal white society because quite frankly, they just continue to vote themselves more money. And while my salary has gone has doubled in the last uh, 40 years on an inflation, you know, inflation adjusted basis, education, healthcare, and housing have gone up four to six X. So everything I need has gotten so expensive, but you figured out a way that I don't make more money, but Social Security got a 9% cost of living adjustment this year. So I think young people are just pissed off. They're like, everybody's killing it, especially an older, wider, more male generation than me. And they're right. They're right. The, we are no longer 
my generation has affected economic and legal policies and, let, and, and social policies that have effectively just transferred so much money from young people to old people. I bought my first house at 28. Do you remember where you, when you bought your first house, Jennifer? Yeah, I got it when I was like 39, 38, 30. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. No one, no, no one in their 20s and 30s. Unless they're getting money from their parents, can afford a house right now. Exactly. No, one hundred percent. I mean, I didn't. Get There's just no that 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 travel travel is booming because people, young people, have stopped saving for a house because it's become no longer it's it's no longer an American dream. It's a hallucination, and they're Especially no longer after COVID. By the way, now it's I mean, with everything happening with prices everywhere, it's impossible. But that's I can't. I can't. I have student debt, which your generation didn't have. Oh wait, Scott, look at Scott. Got to go to UCLA. Seventy-six percent admissions rate, four hundred dollars a quarter. What do you know? He's white and he's male and he's old. Oh, okay. So guess what? The oppressors are older white male people. And I get it. That's the shorthand here. So until we shove some of this prosperity, some of this typhoon of prosperity into a younger generation, every time we have really real issues like this, it's gonna we're gonna just pour gasoline all over it because the most unstable violent societies in the world have one thing in common. They have a disproportionate amount of mostly young, mostly male people who have nothing to lose. And in America, more and more young people, specifically more and more young men, have less and less to lose. And they see prosperity everywhere, but they're not sharing in it. That is ground zero for what turns these problems into polemics and things that rip at the fabric of America. My generation has voted themselves more and more money, and the younger generation is justifiably pissed off. And the easiest shorthand is not only age, but the older generation is more patriarchal and it's wider. Do you, okay, so hold on. Drew, can I go on or do I just wrap this now? I apologize. I think I have to hop. Thanks for having me on, Jennifer, and congratulations on your success. Thank you for... <laughs> thank you, Naked Scott. Jennifer. Good okay. to see you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.